The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, um, we're going to head back there again today. We've been looking at this passage in Genesis 1 for the last few weeks, and we, we, we're in week 3 of a, of a four-week series that we're calling Imago Day. And what we're doing is we're wanting to think theologically about what makes us human, what makes us us. And the Bible has these really fantastic things to say about humanity, that God created mankind with incredible dignity and worth and value. He established mankind as the crown jewel of his creation, and we are made in his image and in his likeness we are made to be like him and even though sin has marred us and made us unable to reflect God's glory on our own God sent his own son as a man to redeem mankind from sin and to make us more and more like the perfect God man Jesus Christ contrary to popular belief the Bible holds mankind to incredibly high, in incredibly high esteem because we are the focus of his redemptive plan. But this world of ours has somewhat of a different story to tell about what makes us human, about mankind. In an effort to elevate and celebrate mankind outside of God's purposes, we have quite ironically eroded mankind's humanity. We have dehumanized ourselves because we've attempted to do so away from God. And this takes place all around us in all sorts of different ways. And so we've been looking at that and, and how, how our culture does this. In the first two weeks of this series, we looked at um, the image of God and how uh, that impacts the, the sanctity of sexuality and the sanctity of gender. And for the next two weeks, we're looking at the image of God and how um, that gives us, how that elevates the sanctity of life. And we're looking at that in, in, both in birth and death. So this week, we're looking at in birth and, and the issue of abortion. And next week, we're looking at death and the issue of euthanasia. This issue of abortion, it's this thing that erodes and rejects the fantastic reality that we are made in God's image. Now, as we approach this topic of abortion this morning, I'm aware that each one of us is, is coming to this topic with all sorts of different experiences and backgrounds. And I want to acknowledge that we're talking about something today that is pretty awful, pretty tough. There, this can be really hard for each of us in, in really unique ways. There are a number of ways that this topic can really affect us. I'm really conscious today of those who are currently... Um, pregnant, or who've had a baby in, the, in, in recent times. This, this topic might hit home in new and unique ways for you. I'm thinking too of those who have planned to have kids, who hopes to have kids, but that hasn't come to fruition. Maybe you've been trying for a long time. And I don't want to underestimate how difficult this topic will be for you to navigate today. And I'm particularly conscious of those of us here who know someone, maybe a loved one, or who have themselves made the decision to abort a child. If that's you, I want up front for you to hear me that uh, 
there's a couple of things that we need to understand that are absolutely foundational about our God. Firstly, God is gracious towards sinners. There is so much mercy and grace for you in Jesus. There is no such thing as a sin that can be outweigh that can outweigh God's love for you. Secondly, God gets closer to us in our hurt. Psalm 34 says, "The Lord is near the brokenhearted; He saves those crushed in spirit." If you are feeling the particular pinch of sin at the moment, know that God is near and that God loves you. Third thing is that God doesn't want us to live under guilt and shame. If you've been carrying guilt and shame with you and you don't feel like God or anyone could ever love you, there is space at the foot of the cross for you. There is an invitation to you from Jesus to repent and to cast your burdens on him. He loves you. He wants to shoulder those burdens for you. The fourth thing is that God can redeem you and he can redeem your story. Even your darkest day is not without the hope of redemption. God can take the story of sin and shame and make it a testimony of his grace and glory. And the fifth thing is that we, is that we as a church would be honored to walk with you on this. If you would allow us, we would love to walk alongside you and see the gospel come to light in your life. If anything is said here today that makes you feel particularly rotten or causes the dark clouds to form above, please reach out. Please talk to someone. We don't want our church to be a museum of saints, but rather a a hospital for broken people. We want our church to be a place of compassion and kindness. Everyone here has, has felt the peculiar pains of sin, whether that was from our own sin or from the sin of someone else. And so if you need to talk to someone, please reach out and talk. And if you, want to, if you would like to talk with someone who's a professional, whether it's counselling or psychology, there are some really wonderful Christian psychologists and counsellors here on the Sunshine Coast, and we can help you get connected with them. Let's pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. Father, we want to humbly submit ourselves uh, to you and to your Son, Jesus, and to your Spirit. We want to submit ourselves to your Word. And we want to just remember and recognize that this is a tough topic that hurts a lot of people. But we also know, Lord, that this hurts you. You are the God who loves the vulnerable, who protects those who are at most risk. In your word, Lord, you seem to have a special place for those who who can't defend themselves. And so, Lord, we ask, Lord, as we navigate your word, as we navigate this issue today, navigate this topic, Lord, that... uh, You would protect, Lord, those who can't defend themselves. Protect our own minds and our own thoughts, Lord, from wayward thinking. 
from sinful thinking, Lord. May you cause us as a church to be more and more like you, Jesus. So, Lord, guide us in your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We're going to go back to Genesis 1, uh, to that very important passage about God creating mankind. Because it is there that we see the value that God places on humanity. We see the purpose there that God has for humanity. And we see the meaning of what it is to be human. The question of identity is so important for each one of us. And the Bible has the most fantastic answers. And a crucial thing that the Bible says about our identity is that our bodies are not external to our true selves. As if our most authentic self is an internal and intangible being that simply inhabits our bodies. Now the Bible teaches us that our bodies, our physical flesh, is intrinsically part of who we are. Our bodies are not lumps of matter that can be shaped and formed according to the design of our own feelings and desires, but they have actually something important and something moral to say about our identity and what it means to be human. And what we're looking at today in particular is how being made in the image of God gives us immense purpose. So coming back to this passage, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, it says, Then God said, Let us make men in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So in making us, making mankind in his image, God gives us, God gives mankind two clear purposes. The first is that mankind is given dominion over the earth. And this is expressed with the three words, to rule, to subdue, and then to rule again in verse 28. And then the second is that mankind is called to populate the earth. Again, with three words, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. The purpose of God's image bearers is to have dominion over creation by filling creation with more image bearers. We're called to rule the earth and we're called to fill the earth. And if you look back uh, to the beginning of of Genesis chapter 1, back at verse 2, This is actually exactly what God did himself. It says there in verse 2 that the earth was formless, that is, without order, and it was empty, it was void. And what did God do? He brought order and he filled it. God ruled over creation by subduing the darkness and bringing form to the formless chaos. And he filled the emptiness, he filled the darkness with light. And he filled the world with his beauty and with his likeness. In fact, you could summarize that that week of creation as being that that God created spaces and then God fills those spaces with created things to rule those spaces. The sun to rule in the day, the moon to rule in the night, the birds to rule in the sky, the fish to rule in the oceans, the animals on the earth. And then mankind is at the apex of it all, called to rule over all created things. 
So a big part of being made in God's image is to do what God does, to rule over creation, which means to, to take care of creation, to steward it, uh, steward the beauty of God's creation. And it also means to fill creation, to fill creation with God's image bearers, which certainly points to procreation, to fill the earth with more people who bear the image of God. So when we come to this issue of abortion, we're not just talking about an issue that we might believe to be abhorrent and wrong. Abortion is mankind actively working against the very purpose that we have been called to, to be fruitful and to multiply. This means that abortion not only destroys the person in the womb, it also dehumanizes the mother, the father, the clinician, and everyone else involved. Abortion is not best for anyone. Everyone is dehumanized by it. We are actively working against the created purpose of God in, when abortion occurs. And what I want to do this morning, if I can, is to talk broadly and objectively about the destructive ideology that surrounds human, ident- human identity and that has allowed abortion to become somewhat of an acceptable thing in our culture. I want to to talk about this ideology that leaves so many casualties in its wake. And I want to then put forward what the Bible has to say about humanity, about birth and the womb. If abortion is a topic that really hits close home to you for a number of reasons, I I hope that you'll hear me say this, that that what I say this morning, I I hope it it doesn't condemn you. I hope you don't feel condemned about it. What I do want to condemn and criticize is the ideology that allows us to believe that abortion is someone's right. I want to condemn the situation that you might have found yourself in, where you felt that that was your only choice. I want to condemn the lies that you might have believed and maybe still do, that this is a a morally neutral thing. I don't want you to feel condemned, as if there is no hope for you. But when we do feel convicted of sin, that is the Holy Spirit causing us to hate our sin and, and, by, and inviting us to, to the freedom from the prison of guilt and shame in the loving arms and the gracious gaze of Jesus Christ who can and will redeem us all from our sin when we put our faith in him. So let's talk about the destructive ideology around abortion. To truly understand how dehumanizing abortion is, we need to understand the ideological assumptions about human identity that our culture has largely adopted. As we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, the dominant cultural belief in our day and age about identity is that our true selves are located somewhere inside of us, somewhere within, and that our bodies are kind of like containers for our true and authentic selves to inhabit. The the origins of of this kind of thought go right to the beginning of Western philosophy with the thinker Plato, who who talked about the soul and the body as being two separate entities, the soul being the true essence of the person and the body simply being a space for the soul to inhabit. It's what we know as dualism. And like the driver of a car, our souls control our bodies and our bodies are external to the true self. Our bodies... Uh, our bodies aren't who we really are. They, our bodies are just, are just something who, we already, who our true identity lives in. 
This system of thought was then modernised by the French philosopher René Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am, and that caused a big stir in the philosophical world. And then that was, uh, and, he, and that kind of brought the central focus of our humanity to our minds. And then this was further developed by the German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who envisioned our minds not just as central to who we are, but authoritative over who we are. Essentially, from Kant's way of thinking, our minds get to decide what's true. If we desire it, then that desire for that thing must be a morally good thing. And the slow but progressive adoption of this worldview throughout the last few hundred years has virtually split the individual human in two. Our thoughts and desires have the moral authority over all things and all other, ma- all other matter, including our bodies, is essentially meaningless. That's, and, and when this postmodern grid is applied to the value that we place on human life, it renders horrific results. Here's the thing. If every thought and desire that we have is considered to be morally good because it comes from our authentic self, then those thoughts and desires will automatically become elevated to rights and entitlements. The thought is, if I want something, then I'm entitled to it because my desires are who I am. Therefore, it's a human right for me to have that thing. And anything that tells me otherwise is, is an infringement upon my rights. So if a person has dreams of a particular career, or a certain social status, or wants a certain level of financial security, or wants to explore their sexuality, then they have the right to do that in the system of thought. And anything that gets in the way of you pursuing your dreams and desires is an infringement upon your rights. This is why pro-abortion groups like Planned Parenthood and others focus so much on the language of rights and freedoms and liberties. The whole, the whole, this whole debate is couched in language of rights and freedoms and liberties. The argument is framed as a woman's right to choose. Now, freedom and rights are really good things. And there are human rights that are fundamental to us. But when those liberties grow out of postmodern assumptions that elevate our inner, inner desires over and above everything else, then taking the life of a baby in the womb suddenly becomes not just justified, but a woman's right. Consider the two most common reasons given for having an abortion. In research from the Good Market Institute, which is a pro-abortion group, they say that 74% of women who have had an abortion, gave the reason that having a child would interfere with their education, work, or ability to care for dependents. And 73% of women stated that they could not afford a baby now. Now, I don't want to gloss over these given reasons. I, I don't want to flatten them out as if this was just a really simple thing. This is a, these are complex... We've said this for the last few weeks as well. We're not talking about topics and theories. We're talking about people here. This can't be divorced from the reality of of people's lives. I don't want to flatten this out as as if that was a really basic, simple, easy decision for every single person. No doubt the vast majority of women who have had an abortion have not found it to be an easy decision at all and have been confronted with the realities of just pressures from all sorts of different angles. 
But what these reasons that are given here in these stats do tell us is that the future prospects of things like study, a career, or financial, financial security were more important to them than the life of their child, or more important to someone than the life of that child. Their right and freedom to those things exceeded the rights of the person in their womb. This is where the postmodern assumptions about the self clash so severely with the reality of our bodies. And it's why the pro-abortion argument has had to go to great lengths to try and prove that life does not begin at conception, but at some point later on during the pregnancy. And as we all know, determining the, the moment that a fetus can be considered as a life has been hotly debated for a long time and there's been no uh, consensus within the scientific community for when life actually begins or within culture as well. And everything has been suggested from that life begins at conception to two days to two weeks to 24 to 28 weeks to full term. Some appeal to um, when you see brain activity. Others appeal to when a child can survive outside of the womb. But even these are changing thresholds. The debate about the beginning of life has raged on. And what has become interesting, I've found this fascinating in the last uh, few weeks as I've been working towards this, is that as technology and, and knowledge has increased, the general scientific estimations of when life begins have actually become earlier and earlier and earlier. Some have even begun to suggest that the scientific community as a whole is for the first time in a long time reaching the consensus that life truly does begin at conception. Now, of course, there are some that would fiercely reject that conclusion, but more and more, the science is pushing in that direction. In a 2017 paper by the American College of Pediatricians, it was stated that the predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception, fertilization. In her book, Love Thy Body, uh, Nancy R. Piercy concludes from her research that most scientifically informed people know that life begins at conception. Virtually everyone agrees that the baby in the womb is human, biologically, physiologically, and genetically human, and it is no longer feasible to insist that the fetus is just a collection of cells. So increasingly... The science is supporting the notion that a human life begins the moment a sperm fertilizes an egg. And we might be forgiven for thinking that once that truth has become completely verified scientifically, then people would abandon the, uh, the idea of abortion altogether. But sadly, this isn't actually the case. And what we're seeing is the power of this destructive, self-centered narrative that sin provides for us. In more recent years, the, the goalposts have actually changed. And the question that is now being asked in these debates is less and less about when life begins and more and more when that life becomes a person. Propelled by the postmodern assumptions about the self, uh, pro-abortionists are increasingly going all in on what's known as personhood theory. Personhood theory acknowledges that you can have a human life in the womb but then states that human life is not necessarily a person. It sounds crazy, but this is where the debate is shifting. And it's where the split between the so-called inner self and the outer body is felt so dramatically. Our bodies are being so rendered as, so mean, as that meaningless that we can say that 
people, scientists are saying that might be a biologically human life, but it's not actually a person. A human being in the womb can be considered to be a life, but not necessarily a person. And since it's not a person, then it's not, worth, uh, it's not a life worth saving. This was evident in the Roe versus Wade decision to legalize abortion. Justice Harry Blackman, who uh, presided over that case, asserted that an unborn baby is not a person and therefore does not have the right to life. He stated in his ruling that if the suggestion of personhood is established, the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed. Simply stated, he's saying we can't establish that that baby in the womb is truly a person. Notice once again there as well that the language that is used there is about rights and liberties. In this logic, the rights of those who want the abortion are more important than the rights of the human life in the womb because that life is yet to be considered as an individual self, a real person. And so the question that is being asked now in these kind of debates and in the discussion about abortion is when does a life become a person? And even saying that sentence makes me feel sick in my stomach. And there are about as many different answers to that question as there are bioethicists. The theories are broad. Some suggest that we need to look for the observance of neural activity. Some suggest it's when the child can feel pain, that's when we know that it's a person. Some suggest that it's when that child has a sense of the future or the capacity for reasoning or self-motivated activity, communication or self-awareness. Others argue that a biological life cannot be considered a person until it exhibits the desire to defend itself. One bioethicist states, if they cannot wish to live, they cannot have that wish frustrated by being killed. John Watson, who discovered the DNA double helix, just, uh, he suggests that we should wait until the baby is three days old before, whether, before deciding whether or not that baby should be allowed to live. And the infamous Australian ethicist Peter Singer says that even three-year-olds are a grey area. This stuff might sound like this... It might sound like science fiction, but this is what is being discussed right now in our world. This is what is being considered in this debate. I'm not suggesting that um, everyone who has had an abortion thinks along these lines, by the way. But once the scientific ground is lost, you'll be forced to go to personhood theory to justify abortion. And ironically, this has turned the tables on the religion versus science debate. It is the worldview of the bioethicists, not the scientific facts that are propping up support of abortion. PSC puts it quite bluntly, and if you are looking for a, a book that helps you understand all of this stuff, there is a book for sale at the back there, Nancy R. PSC's book, Love Thy Body. That is one of the most important books I've read in the last 12 months. Absolutely fantastic. She puts it really bluntly. She says, abortion supporters have lost the argument on the scientific level. They can no longer deny that an embryo is biologically human. As a result, they have switched tactics to an argument based on personhood, defined ultimately by their own personal views and values. And when their view is codified into law, their private values are imposed on everyone else. 
the thing that the church has been accused of for decades, of imposing our personal views on the rest of society, regardless of the science, is now the only tactic left in the arsenal of the person who supports abortion. And what this will lead to, and already has led to, is the development of a certain criteria that a human being must meet in order to be considered a person for their, and for their life to be considered a life worth saving. If the criteria for the conferral of personhood for the unborn is on things like the capacity to reason, to communicate, to defend oneself, etc., it won't be long before those same criteria are being imposed on every single adult as well. And all we have to do is follow that trajectory of this logic to see that it ends in the same kind of dehumanization that was employed by the Nazis for the extermination of people who had disabilities and genetic disorders. In Nazi Germany before World War II, criteria around someone's worth and value and usefulness was formed in order to identify those whose lives were unworthy of being saved, being lived. The Nazi gas chambers were used to exterminate people with disabilities before they were used for the Jews. Now, that might sound like fear-mongering, but it's not. The West is already experimenting with some of these ideologies, and we're going to look into some of them next week as we look at euthanasia. But if you cross the bridge to say that a child in the womb is not a person with, with a life worth saving, then you will be forced to determine what does make a life worth saving, make a human life worth saving. And then you will find breathe, yourself breathing the same air as those who have committed the worst atrocities against mankind over the last 150 years. Now, I don't for a second believe that every single woman who's had an abortion was a calculating killer who wanted to throw off the shackles of responsibility. I don't for a second believe that this was an easy decision. I don't want to underestimate the pain and the grief and the shame that someone might have felt about this. But abortion is morally wrong. It comes from an ideology that needs to be rejected and it is a sin that needs to be repented of. It is the destruction of a vulnerable and defenseless bearer of the image of God. Now, if you have been in that situation, there is grace for you in Jesus. But you must come to him. You must come to him. You must come to him with the empty hands of faith. You must come confessing and repenting your sin. And if you don't repent of your sin, then God's wrath is still on you. And that goes for every single one of us, for every single sin. And the reason why we can and we must come to Jesus is because even though we have all engaged in the senseless and dehumanizing habits of sin, Jesus is the one who restores our humanity. Jesus is the one who restores us as image bearers. And the, and the Bible gives us this wonderful picture about the dignity and the value of all humanity. The Bible holds up a view of personhood that does not cleave the body and soul in two, but rather treats us as a complete and unified self. Our bodies are, not, our bodies are just as much a part of ourselves as our souls, and you only need to be a human to be considered a person for your life to be worth saving. According to God's word, no extra requirements or criteria are placed on human beings by God to be regarded as his image bearers. You just need to be human. You see, 
And contrary to popular belief, the Bible holds humanity in the highest regard. Every human is endowed with the wonderful privilege of being called an image bearer by the sheer fact that they have been conceived. They've been called forth into existence. And that is the same for every single person, regardless of their heritage or what kind of socioeconomic state that they were born into or their nationality or their cognitive ability or whether or not they were born with some kind of mental or physical disability. All people are created in God's image, endowed by the King of the universe, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of armies, the great I Am, the righteous, the perfect, the almighty, the wonderful God of the universe. They are endowed by Him with His likeness, with His value, and with His worth. He is the one, our God of the universe. He is the one that says, mankind is my treasure possession, the crown jewel of my creation. And for that reason, the Bible does not treat pregnancy and the anticipation of children as an interruption of something better, as an interruption of something that we feel we are entitled to. Children are not an inconvenience or a disruption. Children are a blessing from the Lord. Every single person who has been called into existence by God is an image bearer and so bears the wonderful mandate to glorify the Creator. This is what we were created to do to fill the world, to glorify God by filling the world with what? More image bearers, more children. And as you find your way through God's word, you find that this value is placed on humanity time and time again from the point of conception and even earlier. So Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16 gives us a stunning picture of the intricacy and care of God's creation of mankind. We read this at the beginning of our service. It says, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Consider how exquisite and rich that language is. We've got a couple of crocheted rugs in our house at the moment. They were made by my grandmother, and she knitted them together over the course of months with careful skill, paying attention to, to the details of that all. This is the exquisite language that the Bible uses to to describe the creation of mankind. How God weaves us together. He knits us together. It talks about his great care and his great love and his great concentration and his great skill that he created mankind. He goes on, I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. You might be more familiar with this verse. It's saying fearfully and wonderfully made. That that word fearfully, imagine a brand new parent holding their first baby for the first time. Just how much care and concentration goes into that. Like you you come across those parents, like all those parents, right? And they pass you the baby and they're like, before I pass you the baby, can I see your... Like that you've done the training on how to hold a baby? Because like, this, this is my everything. This is the most important thing in the, in the entire history of the universe. So I want to make sure you know what you're doing. That's fearfully made. It's such an incredible thing. And wondrously made. Wondrously made that the child is a treasure in God's eyes. The child in the womb is a treasure to God. He says in verse 15, My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God was working on every human being before before his or her parents knew that they were expecting. 
Isn't that remarkable? There's a bunch of pregnant women in our church right now. Praise God. God knew that you were expecting before you did. He knew that your child, your son, or your daughter's future. He saw the shape of their nose before you went to that ultrasound. He heard their heartbeat before you did. He has planned their days. Every single one of our days has been planned out carefully by God for his glory and for our good. We should be careful to sustain the day because it was written by the Almighty. But this isn't the only passage that expresses the beauty and the value of the unborn. In Job chapter 10, verses 8 and 11, Job acknowledges the same truth as Psalm 139. He says, Your hands shaped and formed me. You clothed me with skin and flesh and wove me together with bones and tendons. And in chapter 31, Job is, is acknowledging that if he was to mistreat one of his own servants, he's kind of he's standing trial before God. And in doing so, he tells us that the foundation of equality between two persons is the fact that they both have been formed in the womb. He says, If I have dismissed the case of my male or female servants when they made a complaint against me, what could I do when God stands up to judge? How could I answer him when he calls me to account? Did not the one who made me in the womb also make them? Did not the same God form us both in the womb? He's saying, what right would I have, do I have to think that God would ever judge me any easier? He formed both of us in the womb. The Bible tells us that civil equality is found not in the color of our skin, not in the capacity of our minds, not in the ability of our bodies, or in any other personal feature. Civil equality is founded in the womb. Every single person is equal in the sight of God. Or consider Jeremiah 1.5 where the prophet learns that he was set apart for the special vocation of being God's mouthpiece to the nations. Not because of something that he did, but because of God's choice before Jeremiah was even conceived. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God's purpose for each individual precedes them even being in the womb. Personhood is not found in the meeting of, criteria, of some criteria by a biological human. You know, you are a person with all the dignity and the worth and the value of an image bearer because God Almighty has called you into existence with the purpose of bringing Him glory. Or consider the incredible honor bestowed upon humanity that the Lord himself would enter the, tomb, the womb of the Virgin Mary. He himself grew in the womb of one of his own image bearers. Isn't that just outrageous? We're coming up to Christmas and we're going to get lots of opportunities to consider how outrageous it is that God was born. That God grew in a womb. And if you're wanting just the most joyful, wonderful, hilarious, and gorgeous slam dunk for the sanctity of life in the womb, you just need to read Luke 1, verses 39 to 41. It says, In those days Mary set out and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judah, where she entered Zechariah's house and greeted Elizabeth. 
When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt inside her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, meeting Jesus for the first time, and they're both in utero. The pre-born forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, leaps in worship in the presence of his pre-born Messiah. I think that's one of the most ridiculous sentences I've ever written. Like the pre-born forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one prophesied in Isaiah, the pre-born forerunner to Jesus, worships the pre-born, his pre-born Messiah. Isn't that just gorgeous? Isn't that just wonderful? Friends, the Bible offers the most fantastic and dignified picture of what it means to be human. We are endowed with the image of God by the sheer fact of being human. No other criterion needs to be met. The Bible tells us that sin at its most fundamental level has dehumanized us. It mars us as image bearers. Sin is serious and its consequences are felt all throughout this life and will be felt for eternity in the next. But the Bible also teaches us about the God who became human. He took flesh upon himself and he became as helpless as every single one of us in the womb. You see, when John the Baptist leapt in the womb, his mother was filled with the Holy Spirit and she said to Mary, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And then Mary said, My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. That's the gospel, friends. There is a great God who is above all things, that, like Mary said, her soul praises his greatness. He is unmatched in his beauty and power and might. And our sin has been against him. First and foremost, every single one of us is a sinner who has, who has sinned and rebelled against the God of the universe, the creator of the entire universe. We have sinned against pure beauty. We need a savior. And so Mary then says, My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. The mother of God needed her son to save her from her sins. And then she says, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Friends, if you've got dark and complicated days in your past and you're carrying around guilt and shame, God sees you. And it's not that he sees you at the other side of the room and he just kind of glances over at you. No, he's looking at you with eyes filled with compassion and grace and mercy and love. He isn't repulsed at you. He doesn't hesitate about you. He doesn't kind of hold his hands back at you. He, he, he doesn't, he's not irked by you. No, he, he moves towards us in his great and unchanging and infinite eternal love towards us. And if you come to him, you'll find that he alone is the one who can remove your guilt and your shame and can lead you on the path of healing. He alone can do that. Friends, let's be a church that looks for ways to stand against the cultural and political powers that dehumanize us. 
Let's be a church that stands for the dignity and the worth of the unborn. Let's be a church that stands with men and women who have been caught up in and have believed the horrible lies of that destructive and sin-soaked narrative. Let's be a church that stands in the gospel and knows that all those who trust in Jesus, for all of them, there is now no condemnation. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.